endless days we will sing your praise, Jesus, in your presence with your holy angels and all the saints gathered around the throne. And we choose to engage now. We say praise be unto you. All glory and honor is yours, Jesus. In your name we pray these things. Amen. 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 You guys have a seat. We are launching a new series this morning in 1 Samuel called Prophets, Priests, and Kings. And I'm excited, really excited to begin this study in the book of 1 Samuel this morning. You know, we just wrapped up 1 Corinthians, and uh, now we're going into an Old Testament narrative, and it's going to feel really, really different. You read an epistle from Paul, a letter to a church from Paul is more didactic, it's more instructive on what ought to happen, and then you read Old Testament narrative, and it's all over the place. It's not always about what's supposed to happen. In fact, most of the time it's about the opposite. It's about what's not supposed to happen. And so there are some basic rules of interpretation that I want us to be aware of. Uh, this, uh, that's a category of study called hermeneutics. Rules of interpretation when it comes to the Bible in particular. And we need to be aware of these. Uh, and generally what will happen is as we study through the book, as we come upon things that could be confusing for us, I will introduce another hermeneutic or a rule for interpretation. And the first and the most important one for us this morning is this. Narrative is not normative. Narrative is not normative. In other words, what the Bible describes for us in the narrative, in the story portions of the Bible, is not always meant to be taken as, well, that's the way it should always be. Right, it's not normative. What, what it means is just because the Bible records a thing doesn't mean that we should automatically take that as good or right or normal. Um, in fact, the, the Bible records a great many things that are not good or right, nor should they be considered normal. Um, another way of saying this is that sometimes our Bible is uh, descriptive, but not prescriptive. It's describing something, not prescribing that we should do the thing. Does that make sense? At times, God's Word is telling us what happened in a certain place, in a certain time, in redemptive history. And sometimes God's Word is telling us what God wants for us in all places at all times. And we need to know and, and get a handhold on when, which, which one is the case. And sometimes those two things overlap, but it's important that we recognize that this is a reality and we read through that lens. So be aware of that as we go forward. And somebody asked me, uh, even this morning, why, why did we choose 1 Samuel? Why are we going to 1 Samuel? Why would, we, why would we choose to camp out here after having been in a New Testament epistle from, from Paul? Well, I, I think that's an excellent question. And I wrote it, and I wrote that question. And I mean, um, why, why is that an excellent question? Is it because I wrote it? I, I'm sorry, I digress. That's not what I intended to say. Uh, mostly, it's a matter of prayer. Just, you know, as we pick the series, as we, we talk about where we're going with the teaching team, it's a matter of prayer um, in, involving the team to some extent. But I think, it's, I think it's just fun and important for us to vary the teaching um, and, and, and to, to look at Old Testament and New Testament and go back and forth and compare and contrast different genres of Scripture. And I just think it helps us as Christians understand the Bible more richly and fully. It's a constant reminder that the Bible's not like any other book, and its author is not like any other author. <laughs> and you and I have the privilege of reading and studying an integrated message system from outside our domain of time and space. I don't know if you've ever thought about the Bible like that before. 
It is an integrated message system from outside our domain of time and space. It was the late Dr. Chuck Missler who was fond of saying that God's word is like a pool that a, a child can wade in and an elephant can bathe in. In other words, it can be apprehended and understood by little children, but even the greatest scholars in the world, the greatest minds that mankind can produce cannot exhaust its pages. And First Samuel is important to us because it sets up a very important piece of Israel uh, pre, uh, pre-New Testament. There's, there's going to be a monarchy where there was no monarchy, and that's a really significant piece as we go forward, especially when we get to the New Covenant and there's some promises about a coming king and a kingdom. And so this, is, this sets up a, quite, a bit, quite a bit of historical context. Um, Let's dive into that, in, into some of that historical context. This means um, as, you, as you come to the Old Testament, you, you inevitably have to address the age of the earth. Like how, how far back does the Bible go and, and how long has the earth been, in, uh, been created? Um, and, and ultimately, when you boil it down, you've got two worldviews. You've got two competing worldviews, essentially. They're, they're gradients in between, but you've got one worldview, which is secularism. And that sees the world as as generally billions of years old. And then you've got a Christian worldview, which generally sees the world, the creation, as being around 6,000 to 10,000 years old, depending on who you you read. Um, A a really good resource on this, and I'll just point you to this, especially if you've got uh, school-age kids, is Answers in Genesis. Um, if you're homeschooling, especially their website is filled with excellent resources for homeschool families. Uh, also recommend Creation Research Institute. Uh, but I share those because I'm going to give us a timeline running up to, to this section of the Bible that we're going to be studying for the next several months. And that timeline does not involve billions and billions and billions of years, as Carl Sagan used to like to say before he died and stood before God. Um, he was a total atheist. <laughs> it's like, well, you're still going to meet him. Um, uh, it actually only involves a few thousand years of biblical history. So here's the run-up. Um, biblical history starts with, in the beginning, God. Full stop. Um, he is the self-existent one. He is the self-sustaining one. It was he who created the heavens and the earth, and then the animals, and then mankind. And he made them male and female. Something our culture presently would do well to remember. And, and he made our first parents, Adam and Eve. And, and Satan, Lucifer, fell at some point after the creation, but before the fall of man. And, and in that gap, he tempted our first parents, and they fell into sin. And now all of creation, because of that, all of creation is under a curse. If you've ever been sick, right? If you've, ever, if you've ever had a loved one pass on, it's the curse. That, and so Adam and Eve had kids who had kids who had kids. And they were told to spread out and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, even though now it's in a fallen state. And that mandate is much more difficult than God intended for it to be. And the Bible provides a reliable history of the universe and the events described in the Bible, particularly in the chapters of Genesis, provide a framework through which we can interpret science and history and, and worldview. And so we, we go all the way back to creation, around 4,000 or so B.C., the flood. Um, they estimate around 
2348 BC, somewhere in there. You come up in history to the Tower of Babel, and, and, then, and then Abraham, right around 1996 BC, before Christ. So you're, you're working from about 4,000 years before Christ, coming up to the time of Jesus, and you've got Abraham, and then Joseph, and then you have uh, Moses on the scene, and, and the whole exodus um, as they leave Egypt, and then they wander in the desert for 40 years. And then you have, um, in 10, 1085 B.C., so we're still before Christ, you have David. And, and, then, and then just a, a few years later, um, you know, so you've got David, and then Solomon, and then the, the kingdom is divided. The monarchy divides in 975. Um, you have Israel about 200 years later going into exile in Assyria. Uh, the Babylonian captivity of Judah in 586 BC. If you were here for our uh, series in the book of Daniel, you'll remember some of that. And then all of that leads us up to the intertestamental period. That the last uh, prophetic voice that's happening there is Malachi, the Italian prophet. It's Malachi. I'm just I'm messing with it's, I just want to see who knows their Bible. It's like, like there's an Italian prophet? No, no. Um, that's the intertestamental period. We're not going to get that far. We're settling into this period of Israel's history after the time of Judges and leading up to the, the, the time of, of the monarchy. And, um, and this guy named Samuel is kind of the bridge here. We're going to meet Samuel uh, in just a moment. Um, God raised up this prophet. Um, and, and for now, just remember that the Old Testament, basically, if you were to sum it up, is the account of a nation. The New Testament is the account of a person. This is all about Israel, the chosen people of God, through whom would come the word of God, both the written word and the living word. And then, and then the new covenant, the New Testament is about that word. It's about Jesus, right? So, um, First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings are actually called one, two, three, and four kingdoms in the Septuagint in the Greek translation. Um, First and Second Samuel, just as an overview, details the life and ministry of Samuel, the kingship of Saul, and then the kingship of David. And if you go to First and Second Kings, you're going to get a description of David's forty-year reign in greater detail. Uh, Solomon and his reign, and then the divided, the split kingdom, and the exile of the northern kingdom to Assyria and the southern kingdom to Babylon years later. So just a quick word about the kings of Israel. Um, it is a prevailing teaching, and I hear this again and again and again, uh, this idea that a king over the nation of Israel was an afterthought. It was something that the people pursued, and then God ultimately relented, and he, deep breath, deep sigh. God's like, okay, you can have a king. And, and then he redeemed it. I would just want to say to you this morning, that is most assuredly not the case. Both Genesis 38, all the way back, and the blessing of, of uh, Abraham to his family, um, and, and, and all, the, all the descendants thereof, and the book of Ruth, anticipate David's genealogy, being of the tribe of Judah, which was always the ruling tribe over the nation. But here's just a quick word about prophets, priests, and kings. These are three offices established by God over his people. And kings can be prophets, and priests can be prophets, but kings cannot be priests. It's one of the things that make Jesus so unique. He's all three. 
he's prophet, priest, and king. Did you know there are a couple of other exceptions in the Bible? There's this weird dude called Melchizedek. Prophet, priest, king. And he's a type of Jesus. And then you got Jesus, who's prophet, priest, and king. And then, and then you know who else? You. The church. We're prophets. We, we proclaim the word of God. We're priests. That's what Peter says. We're, we're a holy priesthood. And we're kings. We're going to reign and rule with him forever. Isn't that awesome? I've, I've always wanted to be the exception to every rule. And now I've, I've, there's, there's an exception and I get to be the exception. Prophets, priests, and kings. I'm so excited about that. So all of this foreshadows Jesus, the creator of the universe, becoming man, his appearance in time and space being the central event in human history. He died to purchase us. He's alive now because God raised him from the dead. And I just want to say before we get to the text, the most exalted privilege that you and I can have is to know him. And and that's what this book is about. That's what the Bible is about, is knowing Jesus. It is the most exalted privilege that you and I can have. And so let's jump into the text of 1 Samuel here this morning. We're going to read... Uh, down to verse 20. We'll, we'll take it in chunks here this morning and, and just exposit along the way. First Samuel 1. There was a certain man of Ramatham Zophim. This is the fun part of the Old Testament. The, the names, the place names, it's, it's just bear with me. Of the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, the son of Jehor- Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. Now, that's important to somebody back then. And it's important for us to know because we'll see how, the, how some of these things relate later. There'll be ties that come together. So file that away. He had two wives. Somebody just woke up. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. The name of the other, Penaniah. Penina. Penina? Penina. Okay. And Penina had children and Hannah had no children. Pretty cut and dry. Tribe of Ephraim. But his family line shows that he's a Levite. What is that about? Is he in the tribe of Ephraim or is he a Levite? Well, according to 1 Chronicles 6, he's a Levite. Here he's called an Ephraimite, but it's only because his family lived in a, a Levitical city within the bounds of the tribe of Ephraim. He wasn't actually of the tri- tribe of Ephraim. That's a point of contention with some scholars and, and, uh, and people who want to dis, disprove the Bible. But it's really actually easy to resolve. He, he was not of the tribe of Ephraim. He just lived in their tribal allotment as a Levite. He had two wives. Now, this immediately raises the question as to why there was so much polygamy in the Old Testament. You ever just read the Old Testament? You go, what is going on? So there's a godly person over here. and He's got like Five wives. What's that about? What's going on? Even the patriarchs had two wives at times, multiple wives. Well, polygamy was a fact of life in the ancient world. However, the Bible never presents polygamy in a favorable light. Again, description, prescription. It's describing something is not prescribing something. Um, strife and conflict always characterize polygamous families in the Bible. Always. The drama is super high. You think you go home and there's drama in your house, add a spouse. <laughs> Exponentially higher. The drama just went way up, okay? 
And so apart from, you just look at this in, in the culture today, even around the world where there are polygamous cults, um, it's, it's always the strict external pressure of the religious system that keeps that thing going. If left to itself, it just, it just spin apart, right? It just wouldn't, it can't, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Polygamy is always a sin in God's sight, though in the case of the patriarchs and saints uh, of, of old, uh, it was a sin of ignorance. And we know this because the Bible has to tell us it was not so in the beginning. It was not so. Um, they, they had taken on cultural influences around them. This was not God's design. And we see here that Hannah was barren. We're told that she's barren. And in that culture at that time, barrenness was seen as a curse from God or from the gods, depending on who you worshipped, uh, depending on what tribe you belonged to. And think about this. You're living in an agrarian society. You grow your own food. You harvest. You, you, you're responsible for feeding your own family. You don't go to work and get a lot. Generally, you know, you're, you're working the ground yourselves. And in that culture where people raised their own food and bartered for basic needs, the labor that offspring could add to the family was invaluable for survival. Hence, to be a woman who was unable to reproduce was seen as a curse. And such women were generally looked down on and shunned by their peers in, in those cultures. So this is the setup, right? So, so think, thinking about who Hannah is and what her life is like as someone who is barren in this culture. So look at verse 3 with me, and we'll go down to verse 8. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Panina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah... He gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. It's almost like the Lord wants us to know that the Lord was the one who closed her womb. So it went on year by year, and as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Dudes. So apparently, Elkanah made an annual privilege for, to Shiloh, pilgrimage to Shiloh to sacrifice to the Lord. And Shiloh's the general location geographically where the tabernacle would be and the temples later be built. And, and this was the ancient setting where Abraham had offered Isaac on on the altar at Mount Moriah. And, and, and everything that happened in this place around Shiloh in some way foreshadowed the coming of Messiah. And according to the law of Moses, the Israelites could not worship God through sacrifice at, at any time and in any way they wanted to. They had to bring sacrifices to the tabernacle, to the priests, which at this time were in Shiloh. And we're introduced to Hophni and Phinehas, who are Eli's sons. And you think, man, priests, these are good guys. Wrong. They're mentioned here, uh, serves to demonstrate just how godly Elkanah was because he's going to offer sacrifice as was God's, God's desire for him. But the priests were wicked. Their reputation was well known to everybody. 
And yet Elkanah still goes and he still offers sacrifices to the Lord, knowing full well that the wickedness of the priests did not negate his sacrifice to the Lord, didn't make it invalid. He goes anyway. And I love that. I love that attitude. Their sin does not invalidate my devotion to God. And the text mentions Hannah's barrenness again, which again, almost universally seen as God's disapproval, his curse on a woman or on a family. And like most husbands, guys, this is where we just need to nod at each other and be like, yeah, we're, we're idiots sometimes. He's trying to, um, he's trying his best to compensate and console her and doing it horribly. Uh, we're told that the Lord closed her womb because that's his prerogative and his plan. And, and the other wife provokes her. No surprise here. Uh, God designed the love that's experienced in the marriage covenant to be between, again, one man and one woman. No more than that. And so you've got this introduction of a third person inevitably provoking insecurity and fear and especially going after Hannah about her barrenness, and, and so, which is why polygamy is always doomed to fail. One wife is enough. Again, two will contend with each other and tear a house apart. And, and you never see polygamy the other way where it's one wife and two husbands. That does not work. It does not work. Um, but speaking of husbands, we always want to fix it. My wife is sobbing. Her heart is broken over something. I just want to fix it. That's what I do. I'll go to the garage and get my tool belt and some, uh, some, and some batteries for my drill and I'll fix it. And you can't, dudes. You can't fix it. Listen to this. Hannah, Hannah's heart is broken. We have no reason to doubt her husband's sincere love for her, but like many men, he was insensitive. He did not recognize that she had needs that he could not fulfill. What? There are needs my wife has that I can't meet. Yeah. Yeah. And when he couldn't fix it, his insecurity manifests in the question, am I not enough? Dude, it's not about you. My wife's laughing right now because she said that to me a million times. It's not about you. She's just sobbing over something that's broken her heart and I'm trying to fix it. And then I'm getting frustrated because I can't fix it. She's like, it's not about you. It's not about you. Am I not enough? (laughs) He's trying to redirect her attention. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Hannah's painful trial has a purpose though in God's economy. He knows what he's doing. He's used this trial of a closed womb to accomplish something great in her life and ultimately to further the whole plan of salvation for mankind. She doesn't know yet that she's part of the lineage and part of the the move of God that is bringing salvation to humanity. There's a bigger story happening here. This situation, this circumstance that she's experiencing it is really hard, genuinely hard, but God's still in control. He has a purpose in mind for her and, and for others well beyond her, people that would come long after her in her line. And, and we would do well to remember that. We, we, we just think whatever's happening is happening to me and it's about me. And, and sometimes God just needs to whisper to our heart and say, you know, it's not. It's not about you. It's about uh, four generations after you that you don't even know yet and what I'm doing to set up something here. 
You don't know. You don't know. So we just need to walk in faith. Verse 9 down to, down to uh, verse 11. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow. And she said, O Lord of hosts, if you indeed will look upon the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. So Hannah seeks solace. Not from her husband, not from her friends, but she just goes to the Lord. She goes to God. She's in the presence of God. She's interceding. She's making her requests known to him. She's weeping bitterly. She's ugly crying. It's ugly cry. You know what I'm talking about. And she vows a vow. Now, most times that this happens in the Bible, it's not good. Because people think they can put God over a barrel. Well, God, I'll give, I'll give you this if you'll just do this for me. It's like, I don't need your stuff. But this is a good vow. This is a good vow. Pay attention to the content of the vow she's making. She says, if you will give me a son, I'll give him back to you. I I just need to know that you're here. I need to know that you're real. I need to know that you can remove this burden from my heart, Lord. And she's desperate to have this reproach removed from her. And so the Lord answers her prayer and gives her a son whose name is Samuel. And she consecrated him to the Lord as a perpetual Nazarite. Now, if you know the Nazarite vow, you'll remember Samson. And at some, sometime Paul took a Nazarite vow. We see that in the book of Acts. And it was like, it was, it was the next level of holiness for a season, of removing yourself from things that weren't bad things, but just to honor the Lord and draw close to him. So, Think about this. Samuel, the child, is already dedicated as a Levite because he's of the tribe of Levi. And so uh, the time of a Levite's dedication to the Lord only lasted from the time they were 30 years old to the time they were 50 years old, according to Numbers chapter 4. But Hannah has taken something that already belonged to the Lord, her son Samuel, who's a Levite, dedicated to the Lord's service, and gave gave it again to him in a greater or more complete way as a Nazarite, his whole life in dedication. Not, not, not a Nazarite vow for him to adhere to for a season of his life, but that he would be a perpetual Nazarite. He would live as a Levite and a Nazarite. That's a huge deal. That's a huge consecration before the Lord. So she's just giving him right back to God. Look at verse 12. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her, her lips moved. Her voice was not heard. So Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord. I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And Eli answered her, Go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. You know, it's often good to pray aloud. 
I love to pray aloud because it can help us to focus better on our thoughts. But in this passage, it shows that prevailing prayer doesn't need to be vocalized. We don't have to say it out loud. God hears our hearts. He knows the thoughts of our minds. Effective prayer can be silent and in the heart. God knows our thoughts and the intentions of our hearts that we, we don't even know. We don't even know the intentions of our hearts sometimes, and God knows. And so Eli assumes she's drunk because of her behavior, and the fact that he suspected that she was drunk in Shiloh at the temple shows that it was probably not unusual for people to get drunk in Shiloh at the fellowship meals at the Lord's tabernacle. It was kind of like Corinth, just, just as jacked up in some ways, right? Um, the Corinthians were getting drunk at their love feasts as a church, and, and people were coming to Shiloh and offering to the Lord, fulfill my obligation religiously, and now I can go get wasted because God's pleased with my fulfillment of my obligation. It's a terrible mindset. Terrible mindset. But these, these, uh, this, this is a patient God that we serve, amen? amen? He's a patient God. I mean, just look at the text. You re- just go home and read a few more chapters in 1 Samuel and go, God is patient. There are moments where I'm like, I'd have just wiped it all out. Just kill them all. He, he doesn't do that. Um, and, and so, again, just, just seeing the culture all around, even around the worship of the Lord in Shiloh, what was normal, what was considered normal, what was, what was happening regularly. Uh, but but his, his, I love what, um, what, what he says to her. He says, the, the God of Israel grant your petition. I can't, I can't do that. May the God of Israel grant your petition. Because Eli understands the situation thoroughly, uh, or, or he misunderstands, excuse me, thoroughly, and jumps to conclusions, and that drives the interaction with Hannah. And Hannah, um, by the way, her name comes from the Hebrew, Kana, which means favor or grace. She's seeking grace from God. It's really, it's really a cool wordplay in the Hebrew. And there's a lesson here for us, because Hannah did not accept Eli's accusation, but neither did she respond in haughtiness or arrogance. She could have. You know what I'm talking about? When somebody accuses you of something you haven't done, and it all comes up, it's right, that indignation rises up. You know what I'm talking about? Hands on the hips. She didn't do that. She explained herself, but she did it remembering that he's the high priest and she showed respect in the rebuttal with gentleness and respect. Hannah's response is measured and it demonstrates tremendous self-control. She's emotionally hurting and wounded and pouring out her heart to the Lord. And here's this priest that assumes that she's drunk and he calls her out. Now in our culture today, Hannah would have chewed him up, spit him out and left a scathing Yelp review. But what really happened was she she demonstrated incredible humility and restraint and honored him. Hannah's Hannah's gentle correction of Eli leads to a response that includes a prophetic blessing from him. And and the change in Hannah's countenance was immediate. shows that she received the promise with faith. She received the promise with faith. Faith is something completely necessary if we're going to inherit the promises of God. We need to take this lesson to heart. Faith is something, not just when we come to Jesus, we believe that he's real and that he died for our sins. That's faith. But we need faith in an ongoing capacity. Something that that, that we receive constantly and renew in our hearts. Hebrews 11, uh, 11, 6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God has to believe that he exists, even though he can't be seen, and that he rewards people who seek him. 
He wants that and he's happy to interact with us. That takes faith. Hebrews, you go back a couple of chapters in Hebrews 6, 11 and 12, and the writer of Hebrews says, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness and to have the full assurance of hope until, right up until the end so that you would not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit promises. I got faith. I'm not so sure about the patience part. Faith and patience inherit promises. As we wait upon the Lord. What was that song? Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. We will wait upon the Lord. We will wait. Why do I have to say it three times? Because I need to hear it three times. Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. And so, so the text here, back, back to 1 Samuel 19, 119, they rose early in the morning, they worshiped before the Lord, and they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew, his, knew Hannah, his wife. That's the code for they, they were together. They, they were in sexual union. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him of the Lord. So before, before they ever leave, they worship God, and then they go home. And I love this term. I love this phrase, the Lord remembered. The Lord remembered. Now, that's an anthropomorphism. Anthro is man, and, and promorph is to put, put something on us, or onto, in this case, onto God that's mannish. Um, God doesn't forget, so it's not like God remembers. Oh, oh yeah, oh, yeah, the, Hannah, Hannah. Where did I put Hannah? He didn't forget. He didn't forget. God didn't forget. But I, but I just love the way that, that it's stated here, the way of explaining God's actions in human terms that we can understand, even if it doesn't perfectly describe God's action. It isn't as if he forgot her, but it's, proper to, it's still proper to say that he remembered her. And, and Samuel, his name means God heard me. Or God listened to me. What an incredible, sweet sweet truth. God hears us when we pray. He hears us when we pray. And Hannah was able to genuinely worship the Lord in faith while the promise was still not yet fulfilled. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, she conceived. And this is the glorious pattern of faith. The desired result did not happen instantaneously. It's like, I prayed. Where's the thing? It's been 10 seconds. God, you can do all things. You spoke the world into existence. Give me my stuff. It's like, no, the pattern is it didn't happen instantaneously. Hannah, Hannah wasn't standing there one minute barren and the next minute her belly expanded to nine months and she's miraculously pregnant. No, nature took its course and time passed. And though she had reason enough to be discouraged, she chose to believe she chose to believe. And even when the fulfillment of the promise took time to come about, she still chose to believe God and take Him at His word. She is a great example of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Hebrews 6. It's the same pattern. Now, when you take all this into consideration that Hannah and Elkanah left their son with Eli to be raised in the house of the Lord, um, I'm, th I'm thinking through this week about application, and I'm like, okay, parenting. That's not a good parenting application um, because the obvious application would be for us, drop your kid off at the local church and leave them there indefinitely. I don't think that's what the text is saying to us. 
So uh, that, clearly that's not the takeaway from this. But the, but the circumstance is exceptional. It's the exception. It's not the norm. This is what we said at the start. Scripture can be descriptive and not prescriptive. Or to say it another way, narrative is not normative. To leave your kid at the temple when they're weaned and never go back for them and just leave them to be raised by the priest is not the norm in the Bible or for the church. And, and I think um, that's good for us to think about. So even the pastors, like if you drop your kids off at my house and disappear, I'm going to put them to work. I may or may not feed them. I don't know. So don't, don't just, don't just leave your kids at the pastor's house. Um, but Hannah, <laughs> Hannah exemplifies faith. Hannah, Hannah models faith for us. And, and we need these examples in, in the scriptures. Not just praying, not just asking and believing God for a son, but, but, but beyond that, giving him back to the Lord. It wasn't just the prayer. It wasn't just the asking and believing in faith. It was the willingness to give him back. She didn't have any right to make a demand of God. God owes us nothing and Hannah knew God looks upon our affliction and the hardship of our short lives, and he has compassion on that which he has made. But, it, but the, you think about this. This is why bargaining with God never works. We don't have anything that he needs. He has no needs. He has everything, and he has, he has everything that we need and don't have, so there's nothing for us to bargain with. So we just come to him and we say, Lord, help Please, based on your character, based on who you are, not based on what I can give you in return. That's, that's humility, by the way. And so, though we've embarked on this verse-by-verse study in 1 Samuel, I think it would behoove us this morning to take a little time to read through Hebrews 11. And even on into chapter 12, we need to have a good grip on faith because that's, that's really what's at stake here. We need to listen to how diverse it is and how it manifests itself in the lives and circumstances of other people. In fact, I'll just, I'm going to read, I'm going to start Hebrews 10, 30, 10, 10, 37. And if you want to follow along with me, you can do that. It says, for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Do you see that phrase? The righteous shall live by faith. But we are not of those who, who shrink back and are destroyed. We are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And then you get to chapter 11, Hebrews. This is the faith chapter, right? The big deal. Well, listen to what, listen to what it says. Faith is the assurance in our hearts, of, of the things that we hope for. And the conviction of things that we can't see. I can't see it, but I believe it. I know that it's real. I know that God is real. I know that heaven is real. I know that Jesus died on the cross. I can't see any of those things. I believe it. That's faith. By it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. Well, why do we need faith? Because you weren't there. You didn't see it. You believe it. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. God didn't have a big pile of lumber and stone and sand and gravel and start making a world. 
He made it out of nothing. He spoke it into existence. That takes faith to believe that. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, though which he was committed as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Wow, you can be pleasing to God. You better believe it. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God has to believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God of coming events, yet unseen, and reverent fear, constructed an ark. Had it in his driveway for like 100 years. You better believe people made fun of him. A flood. We've never seen such a thing. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. He believed God. He took God at his word. He said, I've never seen a flood. I don't know what you're talking about, but I'll build the ark. You just tell me what to do. I'll do it, Lord. By faith, verse 8, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of the place that he was received as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. So, all right, God, you take me there. I don't have GPS. I don't, I, Siri's not going to get me there. You take me. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of that same promise. He was looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah received power to conceive even when she was well past the age. Since she considered him faithful who had promised. God's faithful. He'll do it. I don't know how he's going to do it. I'm 90-something. It says, therefore, from one man, him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as innumerable as the grains of, grains of sand on the seashore. God took this old couple in their 90s. He's, he's over 100. You never had kids. <laughs> I'm going to give you kids. And Sarah, and you know the story, seriously. <clears throat> right? And he's like, just because you did that, you're going to name your first kid Laughter. We're going to call him Laughter because you laughed when I told you. This is faith. This is faith. All these died in faith, verse 13. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. They were still in that old covenant. They were still in that old dispensation, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak like that make it clear that they're, what they're doing is seeking a homeland. Because they know that this is not their home, right? If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they'd have had opportunity to go back. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God's not ashamed to be called their God because he's prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the very act of offering up his only son. How's that work? God says, I'm going to give you a kid. And through that kid... Come all your offspring and bless the nations. It's going to be amazing. Now go kill the kid. How does that work, God? Abraham said, I don't know. I don't know how that works, but I believe that God will do it. I'll obey. And God stopped him, right? This says he considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, which God can do, by the way. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. I mean, in Abraham, you read Genesis 22, 
It says Abraham had reckoned him as dead. He's already, he's, in Abraham's mind, Isaac's dead. And he received him back from the dead, figuratively. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. The government said, kill the babies. And the believers said, we don't, we don't bow to regimes that kill babies. And there might be something there for us. I don't know. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasure of Egypt because he was looking for a greater reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. Whew. Not afraid of governing authorities. The anger. I love it. He endured as seeing him who is invisible. And by faith, they kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Uh, there's more. Just stay with me here. By faith, verse 29, Hebrews 11, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they tried to do the same, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they'd been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say, says the writer of Hebrews? If time would fail me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, <laughs> who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, Stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might gain a better life. Wow, that's faith. Women received back their dead. Others suffered mockings and floggings, verse 36, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, and of whom the world was not worthy. I love that that's in there. The world is not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and in caves of the earth. And all these... All these, though committed through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They hadn't attained it yet, but they believed in faith. Since God provided something better for us, New Testament church, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. There's a, there's a symmetry here. He's bringing the Old Testament saints in to this, this kingdom. We'll talk more about that in the days ahead. But, but listen to how this wraps up. Listen to how this wraps up. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Everybody likes to quote Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. But, but just think about the, where we, what we've laid the foundation of the end of, uh, the, the end of 10, all of 11, all of these examples of faith. And then the writer says, therefore, therefore, since, what's the therefore, therefore? You ought to be asking that question. Well, what's the, because of all the things that we just talked through in chapter 11, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, 
All the people who've come before us, all the, all the saints in the church who've died before us, let us lay aside every weight and, and, and get rid of the sin that clings so closely and, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Righteousness, right standing before God and in his presence does not come from our best efforts. It comes by faith. We believe what he says about salvation and we receive it by faith. And when we do that, we're receiving something that we can't see, we can't touch, but we believe His promises and we receive it. And as a result of enacting faith, which is taking God at His word, we are made righteous in His sight, Scripture tells us. You didn't earn anything, just believe like Hannah did. Just believe God, took Him at His word. Just taking God at his word like all those old saints did who didn't receive, even in their lifetimes, all the things that God had promised. But God is still at work and he's providing something better for us. And in the end, we will be made perfect in his presence. And we believe that by faith. And if you're here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ to save you from the due penalty of your sins, that, that means it's something that you're due. It's something you've earned. Go to your employer and say, hey, my paycheck's due. I've earned some wages. Well, it works that way with God too, except what we've earned we don't really want because the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're here today, you never put your faith in Jesus to save you from the due penalty of your sins. Listen, you could do that today. You could do that. There's no reason to wait. You, you need not look far into your heart to clearly see your sin. It's right there at the surface. I, I, I'll, I'll just tell you. As somebody who knows firsthand, you don't have to go far. It's right there at the surface all the time waiting to come out. But when you acknowledge it before God and repent of it, which means to turn away, and you accept the free gift of grace, you can be set free. Friends, it's really that simple. It's just that simple. If you've never made that decision before, I invite you to be like Hannah today and believe God. Believe him to take him at his word and to receive forgiveness and salvation. And in the light of that reality, and because we're surrounded by such a great number of people who've come before us in faith, we should cast off the things that would hinder our progress. We should look to what is ahead and receive strength and endurance and boldness from the Holy Spirit, who in ages past and we'll see this, only ever came upon God's people to accomplish a task and then left them. But in, but in our situation, in our covenant, His Holy Spirit comes to live in us, dwell in us, permanently set up shop here in us. And then when we die and we stand before Jesus, we get, we get all of the Spirit. It's amazing. Run the race. Look at Jesus. Don't look at the world. Look at Jesus. Look at the one who initiated salvation and made it available to us. Look to the one who loves us and is cheering us on in this long-distance race to the finish line. Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who will believe, to the Jew and to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
Gosh, I don't know. I'm hearing a theme here, folks. Galatians 3.11. It's evident that no one's justified before God by the law because it's written, the righteous will live by faith. It's almost like God's trying to say something to us. You and I must live by faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And Hannah exemplifies that faith that God calls us to. My question for you this morning is, what is God stirring in your heart? What is he stirring? What what longing deep in your soul is being brought into alignment with God's purposes in this season of your life? Have Have you asked him? Maybe you should. Maybe you should ask him. Have you cried out to the Lord and sought him the way that Hannah cried out to the Lord? Maybe you should. You should get some time today, this week, to be alone and to cry out to the Lord and seek him. He wants to hear from you. He delights when his children call on his name and stand firm on his character and on his word. Ask him. Ask him. Let's pray. God, I pray that every saint in this room would, would follow through on that. Even, even though we've, we've received salvation, there are other things that you want for our lives. And, and we want to stand in your presence and we want to receive the things that you want for us in this day. And so, Lord, would you do that? And, and for anyone in the room that, that is not born again yet, Lord, I pray that that would be the next thing that they can't escape from and can't evade and can't put away and can't stop thinking about until they take care of business with you. And you would bring salvation to those individuals, Lord. We just thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you for your word. And we pray all these things in your matchless and mighty name. Amen. You know, as we're beginning this series, Prophets, Priests, and Kings, and 1 Samuel, it's it's important that we recognize God's goodness in introducing us to Hannah and her distress, calling upon the Lord, believing that he hears her and that he answers the cries for help. That's an important first step for us. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. And Hannah exemplifies the faith that God calls us to. God wants us to grow in our faith. He wants us to trust Him more. So ask Him today. I want you to ask Him, what does that look like? Or what does it look like for me to trust you more? And then begin to cultivate a heart that listens to and petitions the God of heaven. We walk by faith and not by sight. Emmaus Road Church, you are sent. Mm -hmm.